You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sephora stores are everywhere you are. So just pop in when you need a brown lip to match your 90s playlist. A confidence boost before your interview? Or a last-minute gift for mom's birthday? There's always a Sephora near you. Just pop in. Use our store locator to find your local Sephora or Sephora at Kohl's. On May 10th, 1940, the Nazis invaded the Netherlands. And life for Cory ten Boom, a 48-year-old watchmaker in the Dutch city of Harlem, would never be the same. Until the war, Cory had lived with her sister and elderly father in the home she'd grown up in above her father's watch shop. Cory and her family were deeply religious Calvinist Christians, and they believed that the Jews were quote-unquote God's chosen people. And as the Nazi threat intensified, they became determined to do whatever they could to help Dutch Jews escape persecution and death. With the help of the Dutch resistance, Cory and her family constructed a tiny secret room in Cory's bedroom, a room they used to offer shelter to neighbors, customers, and anyone else who asked, eventually saving some 800 people from the Nazis. Not only did the Ten Boom family offer a hiding place and a hope of escape, but they also fostered an atmosphere of love, music, and fellowship, providing refugees a sanctuary from the horrors of the war. But all the while, Nazi spies were watching, and after a betrayal by an informant shattered the family's carefully constructed rescue operation, Cory ten Boom was sent to a concentration camp with her sister, who wouldn't make it out alive. Yet Cory herself would emerge at the end of the war with a tale of love, resilience, and forgiveness. You're listening to History Uncovered, brought to you by the digital publisher All That's Interesting, where we explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past. I'm All That's Interesting staff writer Kalina Fraga. Today, we're discussing the incredible story of Cory ten Boom, including an interview with Larry Loftus, the writer of the new book on Cory's life, The Watchmaker's Daughter. Before the Nazis invaded the Netherlands in May 1940, the Ten Boom family lived a quiet life. Caspar Ten Boom, Cory's father, was a watchmaker, and the entire Ten Boom family lived above his watch shop in Harlem. As an adult, Cory made the unusual and courageous decision to follow in Caspar's footsteps, even though there weren't any licensed female watchmakers in the entire country up until that point. Watchmaking gave her great joy. As Cory said, quote, I had always felt happy in this little shop with its tiny voices and shelves of small, shining faces, unquote. In 1921, Corey became a licensed watchmaker and spent the next two decades working alongside her father in his watch shop. But in the 1930s, the Ten Boom family began to worry about the threat growing next door in Germany, the rise of the Nazis. They were a highly religious family of Calvinist Christians in the Dutch Reformed Church and deeply respected Jewish people. Corey's brother, Willem, even wrote his 1928 doctoral dissertation on anti-Semitism in France and Germany, and warned that discrimination against Jews could worsen in the coming years. Willem's words proved tragically prophetic. Jews in Germany faced ever-increasing persecution as the 1930s marched on, until the Nazis finally took their reign of terror abroad when they invaded Poland on September 1, 1939, kicking off World War II. Less than a year later, the Ten Boom family found the Nazis on their doorstep when Germany invaded the Netherlands in May 1940, successfully taking control of the country in just seven days. 
The Nazi reign of terror soon became a fact of life in the Netherlands. Dutch Jews were forced to carry identification cards marked with a large J and wear yellow stars of David on their coats. Thousands of Dutch Jews were also swiftly sent to concentration camps, leading top Nazi official Adolf Eichmann to remark with satisfaction, quote, In the beginning, you could say that the trains from the Netherlands were really rolling. It was quite wonderful, unquote. The ten booms, who had many Jewish friends and customers, were appalled. While visiting with Jewish friends after the Nazi invasion, Corey fretfully thought, quote, At any minute, there might be a rap on this store. These children, this mother and father, might be ordered to the back of a truck, unquote. In fact, it would be a rap on Corey's own door that soon changed her life. In March 1942, a Jewish woman named Mrs. Claire Maker came to the watch shop. She told the Ten Booms that her husband had been arrested, that her son had gone into hiding, and that she was afraid to return home in case the Nazis were waiting. She had heard that the Ten Boom family was sympathetic toward Jews. Casper told her, quote, In this household, God's people are always welcome, unquote. Before long, others would follow. After sheltering Mrs. Claire Maker, the Ten Boom watch shop transformed into a refuge for Dutch Jews and others fleeing the Nazis. Corey quietly coordinated with trusted friends to get extra ration cards for the refugees, and she and her sister Betsy acted as aunts for the men and women who passed through their door. Determined to keep their charges safe, they eventually worked with a member of the Dutch Resistance to install a tiny, secret room in Corey's bedroom, hidden by a false wall, as well as a buzzer that could alert the household to danger. Some people passed through the ten-boom home for only a couple of days. Others stayed for extended periods. And though they lived in the ever-present shadow of death, the mood inside the home was often light. The family and the refugees celebrated birthdays and holidays, sang and played music together, and snuck onto the roof to get fresh air on sunny days. But in February 1944, their careful operation was shattered when an informant named Jan Vogel betrayed the family and told the Nazis everything. Corey, Betsy, and Casper were arrested. But though the Nazis searched their home, including Corey's bedroom, they didn't find the six Jews that were hiding in the secret room at that very moment. After three agonizing days, the trapped refugees were finally rescued by members of the Dutch resistance, but no one would come to save Corey, Betsy, and Casper. Being part of the royal family might seem enticing, but more often than not, it comes at the expense of, well, everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head. Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, pulls back the curtain on royal families, past and present from all over the world, to show you the darker side of what it means to be royalty. Icons like Grace Kelly, Oscar-winning actress-turned-princess of Monaco, who the world saw as the ultimate good girl. She mastered playing a happy wife and mother, but beneath it all, she was desperately lonely. Grace spent her whole life working towards perfection, and it ultimately cost her her happiness. Or King Ludwig II from Bavaria. He was only 18 when his father died, leaving the crown to him and a duty to rule that he never wanted. He refused to lead and used funds from the royal treasury to further his extreme love of opera. But this choice eventually cost him the crown and his life. Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus.
After their arrest, Corey, Betsy, and Casper were brought to a Gestapo prison where one sympathetic guard offered to send Casper, who was 84 years old, home, but only if he'd promised to not cause any more trouble. Casper responded, quote, If I go home today, I will open my door again to any man in need who knocks, unquote. Old and frail, Casper grew ill in prison and died just 10 days later. Corey and Betsy remained imprisoned, sometimes in solitary confinement, but they didn't succumb to despair. Betsy wrote to her niece, quote, The rush of great waters came at me, but I did not despair for one moment. The Lord is close to me as never before in my life, unquote. The sisters leaned on their faith while in prison and eventually struck up a friendly relationship with one of their guards, a reluctant Nazi who was curious about Christianity. When evidence of Corey's illegal activities fell into his hand, he burned the papers in front of her. But no one could save Corey and Betsy from what came next. In June 1944, the sisters were transferred to the Vecht concentration camp. Three months later, they were transferred again, this time to the more notorious Ravensbrück concentration camp, which had been constructed specifically for women. Between 1939 and 1945, more than 100,000 women would die there. Life at Ravensbrook was brutal. Corey and Betsy struggled to sleep in cramped, flea-invested bunks and had to get up every morning for roll call at 4.30 a.m. They were given little food, and the two 50-year-old sisters were forced to work long, exhausting shifts. It wasn't uncommon to see someone die in the yard or to watch the guards beat the ill and weak to death. Still, Corey and Betsy found solace in their faith, and Corey, who had smuggled in a Bible, gave encouraging sermons to the girls and women who she met. But as time went on, Betsy started to get sick. After she was taken to the hospital, Betsy told Corey that they, quote, must tell people what we have learned here. We must tell them that there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corey, because we have been here, unquote. On December 16, 1944, Betsy died at the age of 59. Then, 12 days later, Corey had an extraordinary stroke of luck. Though all the other women in her age group were sent to their deaths, Corey received news that she would be released. In fact, it was all due to a simple clerical error, a fact that Corey didn't learn until after the war was over. She then made her way back home to Harlem, where she resolved to obey her sister's dying words. After returning to the Netherlands, Corrie ten Boom spent the rest of her life preaching messages of love and forgiveness. In 1947, she faced a great personal test when a man approached her after she spoke at a church in Munich, and Corrie recognized him as one of the guards from Ravensbrück. He said, quote, You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk. I was a guard there, but since that time I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well will you forgive me, unquote. Though Corey wrestled with the question, she held his hand and told him that she would forgive him for what he'd done. She later wrote, quote, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us, unquote. By the time Corey died at the age of 91 in April 1983, she had traveled to more than 60 countries and preached to countless crowds by the power of forgiveness. 
Corey, Betsy, and Casper were all recognized as one of Yad Vashem's righteous among nations, an honor given by Israel to non-Jews who helped Jews during the Holocaust. In the end, the ten booms helped save 800 people from certain death. They were not spies or soldiers. The ten booms were simply a family who believed in doing good in the world, a family who proved that one person can make a profound difference. Now, stick around to hear our interview with Larry Loftus, the author of the new book, The Watchmaker's Daughter, The True Story of World War II heroine Corey Ten Boom. All right, Larry Loftus, you're a best-selling author uh, who's written four nonfiction thrillers, including your latest, The Watchmaker's Daughter, The True Story of World War II heroine Corey Ten Boom. Uh, welcome to History Uncovered, and thanks for being here with us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, I really enjoyed reading the book. I'd written about Corey for our site before, but you took such a cool sort of like wide lens perspective of her story. You brought in, you know, the Dutch resistance, her family, the people that they sheltered in their home, as well as other familiar names like Anne Frank and Audrey Hepburn, which I thought was just a really fantastic way of illuminating um, her story. And Queen Wilhelmina, don't forget yes. her. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, all sorts of characters. Um, before this book, you'd written a number of like nonfiction espionage thrillers that were more about spies. So I'm curious what drew you to Corey's story as someone who was sort of a normal person thrust into right. the Dutch resistance. Right. Yeah, and and the short answer is when I was researching Codename Lease. Uh, about an SOE agent operating in France, uh, Odette Sanson. She was she was captured, and they sent her to Ravensbrück, the concentration camp for women in Germany, notorious. And a friend of mine said, "Hey, you need to read The Hiding Place." And I was familiar with the book. I was familiar with Corey, but I'd never read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, uh, "You need to read it because she was at Ravensbrück at the same time that Odette was." Mm-hmm. And my character in um, Codename Lise was in a bunker. She was a spy and she'd already been condemned to death. So they were just, she was just waiting to be executed, but she was underground in a bunker. She saw nothing of what happened around the camp. So reading The Hiding Place gave me the perspective outside the camp, what was happening. Corey and her sister were in the regular barracks. So they Mm -hmm. saw what was happening in the barracks. They went to the work factories. They saw the beatings and all the things that happened. So that gave me a good perspective. So when it was time for the next one, number four, uh, I wanted a new spy agency and I wanted a new country because mm-hmm. it already covered, you know, my first book in the lion's mouth was an MI6 agent in Portugal. Codename Lise was SOE in France. Uh, the Princess Spy was OSS in Spain, Aileen Griffith. And so I wanted a new country and a new agency. Well, I'd covered all the allied spy agencies. Mm-hmm. Well, at least a new country. So the Netherlands, Corey kept popping up in my mind. And I thought, okay, the Netherlands is a new country. And while Corey and her family were not spies, they were involved in the Dutch resistance. And the consequences were basically the same. Mm-hmm. If you get caught, you're either shot or sent to a concentration camp. So that I knew it would be kind of exciting. So then my only question was, how much of the story did The Hiding Place cover? And uh, what most people don't realize is Corey didn't write that book. It was written by two professional American writers whose names write underneath hers, John and Elizabeth Sherrill. Um, she had done her own autobiography right after the war in 19, 
47 called uh, A Prisoner and Yet, but it was basically self-published and very simple and it went nowhere. So these American writers found her, saw her at a, an engagement and said, hey, can we you know, retell your story? So they did. Um, but what I found out was that the hiding place, I, I kind of had a feeling, would, was less than 10% of the story. Hmm. I learned from my prior three books, all of which had prior biographies or autobiographies, and in one case, both. But I, I, I learned that there's a lot of things that people are missing, a lot of things that people leaving out. And when I read The Hiding Place, I thought, this is just a very small window and then so I had to research, okay, is, am I correct? I had to research to find out if I was correct. And so uh, I found out most startling, the number two person in the story of, of the watchmaker's daughter in the hiding place, the number two important person in their house was a, a Dutch boy named Hans Poli. The mm-hmm. Dutch boys had to hide too because just like the Germans would snatch Jews off the street, they would snatch Dutch boys off the street to send them to factories to work in Germany, never to be seen again. So they had to hide as well. So Hans Pohl is the first permanent refugee into their home, stays longer than anybody else. He was the one that got them involved in the resistance. He was the one that said, we need a hiding place. He cut a hole in the roof and that didn't work. And they asked around and finally they got an architect to come in to build a false wall. But uh, he's not even in the story. He's not even mm. in the hiding place. He's completely omitted. Now, Cordy mentioned him in her 1947 autobiography, A Prisoner and Yet, uh, but the Sherrills didn't. And that's the book everybody knows about. No one knows about her first book. Um, so I thought, well, you've got to include Hans Poli. Well, he had written his own book in 1983 called Return to the Hiding Place. And unlike Corey, who didn't keep a diary, he did. Hmm. So I got a daily diary with dialogue of what people said uh, because I write nonfiction. I can't make up dialogue. I can't make up anything. So I can only take from primary sources what I actually have and, you know, in a quote from them. So Polly's book helped tremendously. And then Corey's nephew, Peter Van Warden, who was Corey's sister, Nolly's son, had written his own memoir in 1954 called The Secret Place. And he's another very important character in the story. Basically, hardly anything is mentioned about him in The Hiding Place. Um, And so those two very important characters are are really not even in the story. And then you have, what about the Germans? What are they doing? What are the British doing? What are the Dutch doing? Oh, there's then there's Queen Queen Wilhelmina, who was Mm -hmm. Dutch Churchill. She was for the Dutch, what Churchill was. For, for the British and the French. She's not anywhere in the story. And then, of course, as you mentioned, also missing are what's going on with Anne Frank, who's only 10 miles away in Amsterdam, and yeah. she has a diary. So when things are happening in Harlem, they're happening in Amsterdam, too. And she kept a very detailed diary of bombing raids and, and um, when the planes were coming overhead, going both directions, uh, she, she kept a very detailed description of that, which I, I didn't, I needed, I needed that because she gives the exact date. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to blend that in. And then of course you have Audrey Hepburn, who is very close by in Arnhem and she has own her, her own perspective. So I, I, when I blended all this together with all this research, and oh, by the way, Corey's archives are at Wheaton college. And of course the Sheryls had no access to this because the, the, the archives aren't collected yet. So 
in her archives, I went through box after box after box, uh, four days I was there in the archives, that has everything about her life. There, it's all of her stuff. So it's all of her pictures, all of her letters, her letters from Raven's Book Prison, which are written in Dutch, but she later translated into English. So I had that. Uh, all these photographs that are nowhere else, nowhere else to be found. Uh, so the archives were a treasure trove. So I had all this other information from Poli and from Warden and from Anne Frank and, and Audrey Hepburn and then the archives. So as you said, it gave me the ability to do a wide lens look at the entire picture. Yeah, which I thought was just fantastic because it really painted a picture of uh, the Dutch resistance, which I didn't know very much about. And just a really incredible stories within that um, yeah. world, but also about the people who lived within in their house that they sheltered because you hear the number. I think it's like 800 Jews that they saved during the course of the war. And that's a number. But putting you know names to these people and learning about their stories, and where they came from and some of them at tragic ends and others didn't. But that was a really cool addition to that whole narrative as well. Did you um, see the, the, the end of the book where there's a, the rest of the story of what happened yeah. to those people? Yeah. Sometimes it was good news. Sometimes it was sometimes not. It was not. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I thought that was a really great addition to everything. Well, my next question, you, you sort of answered it, but it's about your research process. And it sounds like it was a really intense um, undertaking. So I'm curious just how long that took. And I mean, did you end up going to the Netherlands? Were you able to get most of what you needed here in the States? Uh, I did not go. I was planning to go to the Netherlands, but COVID hit and, mm. and eliminated that. But uh, I didn't need to because Corey's archives are not in the Netherlands. They're here, as I mentioned, yeah. in college. So everything I needed was here. Um, and I, I'll i give you the, the trajectory. My first book, Into the Lion's Mouth, I spent about 18 months doing research. And I stayed within World War II because it narrows the research I have to do because I'm dealing with the same on the enemy side, I'm dealing with the same Germans. Mm -hmm. I mean, Himmler's Himmler in every, in every story. And Gehring is Gehring in every story. So I'm dealing with the same people. And, and the Dutch story, of course, they're the local uh, Gestapo people and the local SS people that are running it. But, but you have the same general big picture of the, what the Nazis are doing and, and, and so forth, what the German resistance is doing. So I stayed within World War II, and that that narrows the time a little bit. So the second book, it was about a year of research, and the third book was about a year, and so this one was about a year. So I've narrowed it down to where I can pretty much knock out all of the research in a year. Wow. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> was there anything that you found during all this research that struck you as like particularly surprising or struck you just like emotionally on a personal level? And there's a lot there in this book that's very like, ugh, tough stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's I mean, the, the big thing that I came to appreciate was in particular, those two guys that I mentioned, Hans Poli and, and Peter Van Warden, the heroes. I mean, Hans mm -hmm. Poli risked his life. Uh, he, he was the one, as I mentioned, that got them involved in the Dutch resistance and um, told Corey about it because he knew it would bring additional danger. Because it's one thing if you're hiding somebody. It's another if you have an active Dutch resistance person in there because they're going to be executed. They're going to be shot and you might be too. Mm -hmm. So he felt like he had to do something to help his people. He's Dutch. And so when he joined, they gave him a fake ID. They gave him uh, errands, not errands, but they gave him assignments. Like he would be, he would, he was essentially a courier and mm -hmm. he would have to dress up as a girl. So he would dress up, you know, with the wig and then the, the skirt and all that and go out uh, on courier runs. 
and then later they gave him a gun. Well, that's a capital crime under Nazi law. If you mm-hmm. get caught with a gun in your home, you will be executed, no questions asked. That was a capital crime. So when they gave him the gun, tremendous additional pressure on him. And he kept it, he, maybe for the benefit of the 10 booms, he didn't keep it in the Bay A, what their house was called. He kept it in his parents' house. But he could have been executed just for that. And then they said, oh, by the way, your next assignment is to shadow a notorious Gestapo agent here in Harlem who we're thinking about taking out. Hmm. Well, they just gave him a gun. You, you can yeah. put those two dots together. Right. They're saying, we might want you to be an assassin. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, you know, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, there, there's so many. So this kind of tension and drama was throughout the whole story. Peter has to go through the same thing on his side, uh, as do the other family members. Willem, Corey's brother, had, had gotten married, moved out, had kids. Uh, a Gestapo agent raids his home. Mm-hmm. He is actually hiding a Jew at that very moment in his study underneath a trap door at that very moment. And the Jew who later, I, I mentioned this in the story because uh, it, it, it comes back later. Peter, I think, was somewhere and he said, oh, by the way, Willem saved my life. Willem saved my life because um, the Gestapo had come I'm on. I'm hiding in the under the trap door. The Gestapo's right above me. I can hear everything. And Willem was so good at this. He just reprimanded. He was a he was a theologian and a pastor. He mm-hmm. reprimanded the the Gestapo for interrupting his sermon preparation <laughs> and just chewed him out. Yeah. And so the, the the German was like, oh oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So he just left without even looking around. And of course, there's a Jew right under the floor. So that kind of stuff hit all of them every single day. Um, you know, the, the window scene when there's a window washer on the Bay A on the second floor and they're all there having lunch and you've got Jews there and you've got Dutch resistance there and you've got Dutch divers there and somebody's washing the window and one of the resistance <laughs> guys says, okay, everybody's remain calm, but somebody's washing the window. Well, they're on the right. second floor. And so someone, so Betsy says, well, I didn't order the windows washed. And then someone else says, wait, how, how's he doing that? We're on the second floor and there's no ledge. Mm. The guy says he's on a ladder. Oh. And then so you see one of the Jews and a key player in the story was, was right on, on top of this. He said, okay, everybody remain calm. In a few minutes, we're going to sing happy birthday. And so everybody started singing happy birthday. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and I won't tell you how, the, you know, I don't want to spoil it for people that haven't read the book. So um, I'll, I'll stop there. But that kind of drama. So they know it's either Gestapo or, or an informant. Mm-hmm. And, and the proof is right there. They've got all the people in the room. And so that kind of drama, that kind of tension. One night it's an army truck, a German army truck right out in front of their door that parks at two o'clock in the morning. So they had to deal with this every single day. In fact, one of the Dutch divers that was that had taken refuge there was a young boy who was a lay electrician. So he wired the house with warning buttons. Mm-hmm. So he would have a button, one at the, the, the watch shop at the bottom, one at their front door, one at Corey's desk, one at her dad, Casper's desk, one in the kitchen, one in the dining room, so that if they felt like the Gestapo or a German soldier was at the door, they would hit that button and it would ring a buzzer up where the Jews and the Dutch divers were hiding 
up on the second floor and everybody would scamper to the third floor to get into the hiding place they created in the back of Corey's room. Ingenious. Yeah. That, you know, so they're hitting this buzzer all the time. And and when they built out the hiding place, the guy who who basically designed it said, Corey, you've got to get people, everyone into this thing in, in a, under a minute. Mm. And she's like, well, that's impossible. You know, they have to, they've got four, five, six people. They would only hold eight. And sometimes they had more than eight. They had 10, they had 11. Um, but it wasn't just running in there and crawling. There was a little trap door at the bottom of a false linen closet. It wasn't just getting in there. They had to turn their beds before they did this. Mm-hmm. Because the Gestapo's not stupid. When they come yeah. in on a raid, all they have to do is put their hand on a bed and feel if it's warm. Well, there's only three people that live in the house, Casper, Betsy, and Corey. So all these other beds, if they're all warm, then the Gestapo would know. So they have to flip them. They have to flip their beds and then take into the hiding place all of the things that they brought with them. Their clothes. You uh, see had a had a pipe and an ashtray. They might have a blanket. Whatever they had, they had to drag with them into Leander, the, the guy who designed all the buzzer system, had a briefcase. So they had to get all that stuff and take it in with them. So they started timing it, and Corey timed everybody, and they practiced, and they practiced, and they practiced. They got it under, they got it under 70 seconds. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. To get everybody in, and in fact, there's, as you know in the story, there's an instance where six people get trapped in there, four Jews and two Dutch resistance, and they can't get out because they're German Gestapo agents in the building, in their house. Mm-hmm. And they can't get out. They can hear the German voices. They can't get out. They're trapped. And um, I, I mean, it's scary because and they they made a little mistake. Corey didn't put any food or water in there. And so they, I guess, had anticipated it would be in there over, you know, more than overnight. But the Gestapo stayed in there because they felt like there are, there are Jews around here somewhere. We're going to find them. Yeah. So they just stayed there and camped there. And meanwhile, you've got these six people that are basically in a small closet in the shape of a coffin with no mm-hmm. ventilation. And they're just stuck there. It's so tight and cramped. Only two people can sit at a time. The other four have to stand. There's no food. There's no water. There are no facilities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they tore up some sheets that were in there to urinate on those so they wouldn't go through the floor that the Germans mm-hmm. would notice. Right. Uh, and then for the other, they had a bucket, which Ronnie Gazan, one of the Jews that was stuck in there, had knocked over the second night. Mm-hmm. So the thing was like a sewer. It was the stench, you know, to the trap there. And you have all of this in there with them and the body older. I mean, it was a nightmare. And they're stuck there. Yeah. For three days. And uh, I'll not say how it ended, but <laughs> stuck there. And right. You can't. You couldn't write a fiction story to make up this kind of drama and excitement better yeah. than what happened in real life. Absolutely. And there were a couple of times. I don't want to give anything away about the book, but there were. You mentioned Hans's gun, and there's something about a search for the gun that's like incredible. Corey, when she's eventually something happens to Corey at the concentration camp at the end of her time there. That's amazing. And even some of the, the Nazi guards they meet, and the effect they have on each other is really mm-hmm. incredible. Um, yeah, I've had a number of people tell me the key German, as you know, is Hans Rams, who was mm-hmm. the the German who was basically the judge, jury, and executioner for people that came into 
the, the prison, Shevaningen, where they were all basically arraigned and, and determined whether they would stay in prison, uh, go to a concentration camp, be set free, or executed. And, mm-hmm. and Hans Brahms had the authority to do all the above. And so uh, all of the key, you know, the key people in the story appeared before him. So Corey appears before him. Betsy appears before him. Peter appears before him you know, all independently. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, you know, I, we, I won't spoil it, but it's very moving because this is a German yeah. who's not a Nazi. He's in the SS. The SS controls everything. Um, the SS is part of the Nazi party. Um, has nothing to do with the German military. The Wehrmacht actually hated the Nazis because it was a it was a psychopath political party army essentially. So he wasn't a Nazi, but he'd been sort of trained under the Nazi ideology because from the time German boys were young, they were indoctrinated in the Hitler Youth with all of this, you know, uh, just evil thoughts, uh, mm-hmm. people that are weak and old are to be done away with. If someone has a handicap, they're to be done away with. I mean, that kind of stuff. And so there's a very moving scene where Corey uh, and Betsy, too, are basically turning the tables. They're ministering to him. He's supposed to be asking them questions about their involvement in the Dutch resistance. And before he knows it, they're sharing the gospel with him. Yeah. And, and, and he's he's you know, stuck in his own heart because he hates his job. He absolutely hates it. He knows that this is wrong. He knows that the Nazis are are criminal thugs, but that's his job. He's a German. That's the, you know, position that he's in. Mm -hmm. And so he's torn every day and, and it comes to a head because as they're talking to him, Corey says something like, uh, you know, are you in a dark place, Lieutenant Roms? And he just like almost breaks down and just, you know, his head goes down and he's just, I mean, he's on the verge of collapse and he just says, you have no idea of the darkness that I'm in. Mm. I have a wife and children in Germany. I don't know if they're alive. I don't know if they're going to be bombed to smithereens tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'll ever see them again. And so he's dealing with this tension himself this internal fight. Meanwhile, the, the, the 10 booms are all ministering to him and they're trying yeah. to comfort him, even though right. they're prisoners. So the tables are turned. And as you know, the, the, the one key place, there's all this incriminated evidence he has before Corey, all this, the, the Gestapo raided, when they raided the Bayer, they found all of her notes. They found the names mm-hmm. of people involved. They found the ration cards all of which are absolutely going to send you directly to a concentration camp, if not immediate execution. And because she had done so many things, um, it it would have been execution under normal, under a normal person. And um, I won't spoil it, but Hans Roms does something extremely moving, extremely magnanimous, and she's not executed. Yeah. Yeah. That was extraordinary. I think I like gasped out loud during that passage. Yeah. It's really amazing. Yeah. I mean, well, given fact, how- we put that, that, that little, that little part of the story uh, in the audio, because the, uh, my editor sent me, here's a, an audio clip uh, that they're going to use as a sample mm. uh, for people who want to listen to the, the book on audio. And they just started with chapter one. And I'm like, well, don't start with chapter one. That's just kind of the boring beginning of the, you know, the family start mm-hmm. with. And so I said, we need to just plug in what happened with Corey when she's arraigned before 
Hans Roms, and he has all of the evidence incriminating her right in front of him. Yeah. So use that. So that's what's on the audio clip right now is that very scene. It's definitely a good, a good hook. Yeah. It pulls you in. Um, I mean, there's so much in this book. Was there anything that you found out through your research that you decided you didn't have room for in the end that you wanted to include? Yeah, that's a problem I always have. Yeah. Because, you know, you deal with this much information, but you you, you can only have a book, you know, that's 350 pages long. So you got to you got to tone it down. And so that means you have to get rid of stuff. And so um, it's always a a, a, a um, interchange between what I put in, what I take out. And as Hitchcock once said, when he was asked, what, what, what is suspense? You know, what, what is, what, what is true suspense? And Hitchcock said, well, it's life with the boring parts taken out. Mm-hmm. So that's my job. My job is to take out the boring parts because I write nonfiction thrillers, which sounds like an oxymoron, but if you find a great story that has a lot of things that happen and a lot of drama and a lot of danger, then if you write it correctly and take out the boring parts, you can make it a thriller. So yeah. that's my stick. That's the genre I kind of invented. And and I I love doing it because people that don't normally read nonfiction because they think it's boring. They say, oh, mm-hmm. that's a boring history. It's a history book. Well, if it reads like a thriller, like a fiction book, like a novel, and it has a story, because that's the reason a lot of people don't read nonfiction. They want to connect to people in the story. Mm-hmm. They want to feel like they're there, what we call verisimilitude, where the reader feels like they're there in the scene at that time. And so with fiction, you get that because they can just make everything up and bring in all whatever they want in terms of descriptions and whatever, uh, bring a gun in here or, or bring a, you know, a dead body in here. Well, I can't do that. Uh, but but I get to decide where to break chapters. Yeah. And so I tend to break them. You know, after something crazy, there's a dead body, there's a gun, there's, there's right. a missing briefcase in the case of codename lease so um but what i do to answer your question what i do there's a ton of great information that i can't put in Mm -hmm. so i put it in other places if i put it in the main story then it's an info dump and it slows the pace down and it slows the reader down so what i'll do with other great information is i'll put it either in a footnote at the bottom of the page so if you don't want to read it, you don't have to just keep reading. Um, but if you see the footnote, oh, what I want to know the details, then you go down to the footnote. Or if it's really long, I put in the back uh, in the end notes mm-hmm. where the citations are. So anybody that wants to check where did this dialogue come from, we'll just go to the end notes. There's a citation there. But in about 50% of the end notes, I tell more of the story because there's stuff that I can't put into the main story without basically chasing a rabbit trail and getting us way off track from the main story. Right. Uh, and then the other place, uh, if you remember at the very beginning of the book, an epigram, which is the, the, the thing that authors put at the beginning of books is a, uh, um, a, a piece written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he was in prison, mm-hmm. uh, a famous German theologian and pastor who, worked as part of the conspiracy to get rid of Hitler because he knew he was a madman. Um, of course, they were caught. So he's in prison and, and eventually was executed. But he wrote this wonderful, wonderful, essentially like a poem when he was in prison uh, himself. Uh, and so I included that in, in the uh, epigram. And, in a, and I think in one of my books, he wrote a very moving poem called Who Am I? Uh, because the guards, ironically enough, the German guards loved him. 
Hmm. He was a pastor. They, they went to him for marital advice. Hey, I'm having <laughs> trouble with my marriage. My wife and I are. And so he would counsel them. He would counsel some of them that are about to get married. So he's essentially pastoring from his prison cell. So they loved him. That's so they snuck out all of his letters. That's how they exist. So whenever I'm typically giving a, a Bonhoeffer quote or something, I'm citing to his book called Letters and Papers from Prison. That's what family members collected from all the letters that guards had snuck out for him to his fiance, to his father, to his family, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So those are the places where I can put stuff in without detracting from the story. I see. Yeah. I mean, definitely re- every chapter ends on like a cliffhanger, but all the footnotes and stuff were helpful in like adding context. And especially if you don't know the history of World War II or right. the Netherlands, um, the role and in it. Pictures. There are pictures there. Yeah. Various, some from the archives, some from uh, Hans Poli's book, different places. That uh, you can actually see the person, people that I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, and that was and really cool. The bride too. who's playing an elderly but very distinguished Jew who was they were hiding. Who was playing? He's playing a violin. You know, they would yeah. have like little yeah. mini concerts in the home. Right. There's some joy there, um, yeah. despite everything. Yeah. Well, I'll ask you just one more question. I know we we've taken up um, a lot of your time, but you know, you covered all these spies. Then you covered Corey Ten Boom, who's a bit different. Do you have any idea who your next subject might be? that you're willing to share? Not only do I have a good idea, I've already finished the research. Oh, wow. I'm just, um, I'm just basically, I have to put it in a calendar because Mm -hmm. I have nonfiction. I have to follow what happened in real life. So I'm calendaring things, but um, it's about an OSS agent, a double agent um, who was operating out of Sweden and Germany. He was in Germany a lot. In Berlin, he met with Goering. He met with Himmler. Um, very important spy. So he's next. Okay, great. We'll have to keep an eye out for that one then. All right. Well, Larry Loftus, thank you so much for talking with us today and everyone to check out your book, The Watchmaker's Daughter. It's a fantastic read, really exciting and and educational. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and make sure to keep up with new episodes by subscribing and following us on TikTok at Real History Uncovered. Discover more of the fascinating stories from the worlds of history and true crime at allitsinteresting.com. And to get the most out of All It's Interesting, you can join our newsletter by going to allitsinteresting.com slash signup, or becoming a member at allitsinteresting.com slash membership. If you have a question about the show, a story you'd like us to cover, or just want to say hi, call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcast at allthatsinteresting.com. History Uncovered is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring. Monsters are as old as humanity itself. Monsters embody our fears. Yet, they help us define the boundaries of what it means to be human. We know most monsters aren't real. Yet, we can use monsters to learn about reality. Psychology, biology, folklore, literature, critical thinking. We're on a journey to learn about the world through the lens of monsters. And we hope you'll come along with us. Subscribe at monstertalk.org.